0: If we are saying that oppression causes mental health suffering, then we need to look about the whole spectrum of what oppression looks like, and all of that is healing justice.
1: This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and welcome to the first full episode of season two. This week, we are talking about destigmatizing mental health with Agustina and Rihanna from The Icarus Project. I am so excited that we are really kicking off this season with this conversation. It is so important. Um, As they talk about in this episode, all of us have mental health, and so the idea of it being stigmatized is ridiculous, but has been intentional and comes from somewhere. And so in this episode, we're talking about a lot of things. We'll be talking about why mental health was stigmatized in the first place, how that interplays with systems of oppression... We'll talk candidly about suicide, mental health struggles, and talk about ableist words like crazy or lunatic or mad that Icarus Project has done a lot of reclaiming around. We'll talk a little bit about medication, hospitalization, and more. So may this serve as both a preview and a trigger warning if those are topics that you are not uh, feeling equipped, supported to dive into today. go ahead and press pause. There's other episodes in our catalog that you can listen to. And if you're listening to this right when it comes out, you'll be experiencing our new rhythm of practice and conversation. We always share a conversation and then a corresponding practice on this podcast so that you can get exposed to a theme and really dive in with story and narrative with our guests. But then there's uh, an offering from the guest of an exercise or a meditation or something you could facilitate in your group in order to practice or really dive in around the topic we talked about. So. The new rhythm is that the conversation comes out this week, and next week you'll see the practice. So if you're listening to this right when it comes out, hold tight, and we have a special gift from Icarus, which is that the practice will be offered next week, both in English and in Spanish. So, the Icarus Project is a support network and education project by and for people who experience the world in ways that are often diagnosed as mental illness. They are totally leaders in this conversation, have been doing this work for a long time, and they advance social justice by fostering mutual aid practices that reconnect healing and collective liberation. We're joined by Agustina Vidal, who has been part of the Icarus Project community since 2006 and is currently the program director, and her focus is on the development of new tools and resources for the US and Latin America. You'll also hear Rihanna Anthony, who is a queer black girl magician working toward collective liberation through community organizing, soulful facilitation, and healing justice. Rihanna currently works as the Icarus Project webinar coordinator and facilitator, and is also a founder and consultant of Conjure Community Healing Arts, and a trainer for the Isaiah Young Institute. Rihanna is a black southern organizer, abolitionist, and earth steward. This episode is dedicated to all of those who we've lost too soon. Dontre Hamilton, Sahid Vassell, Amber Evans, Marshawn McCarroll, and so many others. I'll take a moment here for you to call to mind people in your own life, maybe including yourself, who have been caught in the crosshairs of a system that is not Prepared, equipped, or designed to support our mental health and our safety. We remember those folks who we've lost, and we fight for the living. Here's the conversation with Rihanna and Agustina. So welcome, Agustina. Welcome, Rihanna. Hi, how are you doing? (laughs) Hey, I'm so happy you both are here on the podcast. The Icarus Project has such an incredible long reputation of doing really deep work around destigmatizing and supporting mental health and it's amazing it's taken us this long to have you come on but I also know you are like in it, you are busy, you are supporting people, you are teaching people and so in that sense it makes sense that it's taken this long. Thank you for having us I'm so glad you're here and would you tell us just a basic intro of what is the Icarus Project?
0: Yeah, I can do that but you know, um It's a dynamic, dynamic situation. Uh, I think the root of the project is self determination. We do not make statements of what is what is a mental illness that it exists or does not exist. We wanna allow room for people to name their experiences as it as as it makes the most sense for them.
2: Yeah, and and I would definitely say. That resonated in me when I first started working for Icarus Project, and I found that um, Icarus invites a lot of those conversations that don't get to happen a lot of times in our movements that are kind of sidelined or our folks are dealing with on their own. And so it really just brings that to the forefront um, in, in the conversation and having an organization that is like putting that on the front. The, the front burner. <laughs> One of the things that is a principle for us is that everyone has mental health. Uh, mental health is not something that, you know, someone over there is dealing with and I'm okay and I'm good. It's like, no, just like every other health outcome or anything else that we're dealing with in this, this third dimension in our bodies, like... Everyone is dealing with the mental capacity. Everyone is dealing with trying to maintain or or reach whatever they believe is their optimal mental health state. So um, we really believe that that is for people to self-define what that yeah. means.
0: And mental health can be a very tricky word, word as well because it can bring images of the mental health system that could be very harmful uh, and very oppressive for a lot of folks. That we have so many people that had terrible, terrible experiences. So sometimes, usually when I'm talking, I will just refer to it as emotional health or emotional wellness instead of mental health. Is there like an origin
1: story of why Icarus Project came into being? Who was it founded by and for? And what's sort of been the trajectory of this work?
0: Yes. I don't know if I have the full story, uh, but I kind of put something together, uh, it was created by Sasha alman and Jax McNamara. Uh, I think that it was very deeply connected with a wave of suicides in, t- in the activist community. Uh, mental illness and the symptoms of mental illness or uh, states of consciousness, that's another word that you, you use uh states of consciousness as mad gifts of something that could be used to transform society to improve society the metaphor of icarus is uh, this little boy that is given wax wings to escape the labyrinth and he is warned not to fly directly to the sun because the wings will melt and he will die and Icarus gets so intoxicated that he flies too close to the sun and he dies and the idea of of mad gift is uh, I need to control them and make sure what is the right balance so that we are keeping each other from flying close to the sun Uh, so that is the origin story I think that we that was over 10 years ago so I think that we have come a long way. Since that we have a lot of analysis about what does it mean that it's named after a boy? What does it mean that this is a Greek mythology? What does it mean to think that there are mad gifts? Um, so we, we currently do not embrace the that mythology, that um, wording. Uh, it, 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 in, in a lot of ways it feels like really privileged as well. Uh, I was working in asylums, in asylums in Argentina all the time that had um, a thousand to two thousand people, and thinking, "Oh, I'm just gonna go in there and I'm gonna tell them that they had mad gifts." Actually, it felt <laughs> really ridiculous to me. Uh, so, as we, as I was working in Argentina and I was partnering with the Acres Project, so we were having all these conversations about. Uh, what is a, a framework that will be more universal, that will be actually helpful and resonate to everybody. Um, so although that's the origin story, it's not something that we say today anymore.
2: Yeah. And and um, from my entry point and, and kind of how I've understood the trajectory um, of even the people that Icarus is serving uh, has shifted over time. So, um, you know, very early on um, was much more support group based or was working with even inside of different institutions uh, to kind of consciousize or help people aware that there are other ways of thinking about um, mental illness outside of, you know, the traditional frameworks and big pharma and, and and just like expanding the conversation around what is the autonomy of the individual, even in those institutions, in those systems and understanding. How those systems even came to be. I mean, even the language around like mad and and you know crazy and lunacy and some of these like ableist really like terms um, were not were terms that were created in those institutions to label and usually categorize and imprison um, folks that were poor, folks that were of color, folks that did not fit in the society that was being created, and so. It's also in this historical dialectic around even how these institutions came to be and and the oppression of those who um, were considered to be outside of the gaze and outside of the social performance um, of the society. And so, you know, I think our focus right now and I in a in a thing that has been really transformational is to um, shift a lot of our energy and attention into social movements and organizations and activists and, and maybe not even activists or even just more progressive organizations um, of like, um, how do we meet that need? How do we have those conversations, not just in the institutions, but to the activists and other folks that are maybe walking in different worlds and um, and maybe have had previous experience in those institutions, um, and is trying to navigate and negotiate. Negotiate, and we're at an interesting crux too, uh, where we're we're interrogating, right? Like things are that the accumulated traumas, the intergenerational traumas um, that our people have experienced, and and that is like a critical piece of us understanding, you know, what is. What is the state of our mental health right now? Our emotional wellness? How did we get here? How does oppression interplay and, and um, affect that? And so, yeah, we're definitely in a place of like rediscovery and, and finding a path that feels true to where we are and, and for what, what knowledge we've gained over the course of the organization's existence.
0: Yeah, and I think the primary question that we are wrestling w- right now and we do not have an answer, we've been talking about it for quite some time and we still, is we, we know that identifying or being identified as somebody that has experiences that are often labeled as mental illness, um, although it creates conflicts for everybody because all the stigma, how people feel about them, um, there are certain groups for which it's a lot more than that, in which it is outright dangerous. Um, and at the same time, is we don't talk enough about how intense these experiences can be, how disruptive they can be, and how much support they need. So the question is, how do we center people with the most intense state of consciousness while not forcing them to come out and be in danger. So it's like, how do we safely invite uncertain people without them becoming targets just by being part of the organization?
1: That feels so important. And the um, there was something that Rihanna said, a term about just like people not performing in the in the, the norms, the dominant norms of the society. And I'm wondering for folks who are listening who might have a framework around, oh, I understand how racism is operating. I understand how sexism is operating. Like in looking at the dominant politics of our country but have never thought before about applying them to mental health of like what do those details look like? What are those stories? Like can you just help us dial it back and understand why mental health is stigmatized to begin with like what is the origin story of that and then what are the ways that you see it come up now that you're actually trying to destigmatize?
0: yeah do you want me to give a little bit of the origin story and then i'll let you
2: yeah take it
0: away from that
2: that sounds good (laughs) okay
0: so yeah because i think it's really important to to look back on this right we know that the first time in which these experiences were named and acted on, was when the asylums were created. And when the asylums were created, they were created to keep the population safe from people labeled as mentally ill. They were never intended to support, help, improve the lives uh, of folks with mental health experiences that didn't conform to, to the norm. Um, and from that, we see the, div- the development of psychiatry, uh, that developed from these asylums where they had horrible, horrible conditions uh, because it was never meant for, for, their, for their well-being. And from that, we, we see people interested, like mostly all white, that are like, oh, we have all these mentally ill people together, what can we do about it? Um, and basically treating them as guinea pigs for cruel, cruel experiments like spinning, where they would put people um, in sort of a hammock and make them spin all day because they thought that that would uh, put their brain, whatever, back together. Or bleeding, where they would take heavy amounts of blood from people every day, believing that that would let uh, the the mentally ill whatever demon that they have out. Um, ice baths, where they would l- make people be all day in a ice water, thinking that that would help them. So with all these experiments that we look at today, I was like, what were they thinking? <laughs> you know, like. Even from a scientific point of view, like like they conceive people as being possessed or demonized, and actually having experiences that were different from the norm, and there was no effort in understanding these experiences, and these quote unquote treatments and cures went as far as lobotomies. Like it was better to have a person completely unable to move, speak, than to have them be the way that they were. So I think that that's really important to remember that the history of psychiatry, it's cruel and that it doesn't hold the person's well-being at its core. And as time advances and there are different treatments and different things, we start seeing mental health being used to target groups of people, target women that are not being good housewives, to target, target poor folks, to get them out of the streets, because people, middle-class folks did not like to see homeless people. So it's a history that is really rooted in violence. And it's really rooted in rem- in removing people out of sight of society.
2: Yeah, whew. and and I I think about and I approach this conversation um, in the lineage and and of learning about healing justice frameworks um, from you know even earlier guests Car Page and um, Susan Raffalo around like. We are doing the work of really uncovering and rediscovering um, a lot of the ways that not even just the mental health system, but the healthcare system in general, um, has been created off the backs and the pain of a lot of people, um, and continues to perpetuate that for profit. So, you know, for those of you that are, are thinking about it from a capitalist is capitalist framework, right? Like, um, it's not a coincidence that. Um, a lot of the people that are in our prisons, and our jails that are facing mental illnesses or dealing with those experiences aren't aren't getting support and help they need. They're they're being imprisoned um, or even when we think of people that are facing um, homelessness or um, all these different inner intersections of when people's basic needs aren't being met and are literally being squelched by oppression. You know, it's hard for me to be like well you know those people should just get it together like are you serious you know (laughs) like it's it's hard for me to believe that we're all not malfunctioning on a high level you know what i'm saying being faced with so many obstacles and so many layers of oppression and historical traumas um and you know even to the history of the mental health system you know me as a black woman you know there were books and people that were writing about how it was considered something wrong for a slave to not, to want to run away from their master. And that was considered a mental illness at the time. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like, or these ways in which groups like self determining and challenging a power structure was considered to be an abnormal behavior. Um, and so when I was saying that around, you know, historically, people that were challenging power structures or even operating in ways that, at that current time, were considered to be not the way to be. It was a, It's a lot easier to criminalize that, to put it away, to erase it. And I think that this this includes conversations that we're currently having around transformative justice and um, the prison industrial complex and um, even the medical industrial complex and the ways in which our bodies are being um, literally in apartheid in a lot of places, um, from accessing the healthcare that we need to be healthy. You know, these are all parts and forms and ways that this beast is kind of functioning and we interplay with it in, in these really complicated ways. So yeah, the history is huge and, and I encourage, um, people that are really interested in that to, um, To explore, like you know, some of the things that around the histories of psychology, the history of psychiatry, um, and the ways that some of these institutions were founded, um, that were really well known of, like for example, most people don't know it, and um, I read it from this amazing book. It's called Healing Cures, Healing Health and Power on Southern Slave Plantations, and it's by Charla Fett. Um, and in this book, it it talks about and explains even the oranges of insurance, like insurance, the Aetna insurance company um, was sued a couple years ago, because of its history in providing coverage for slave masters for slaves. And the only reason why like they would insure their slaves is so that if their slave died under the conditions of slavery, that they would get compensated. So, you know, we also are in a dialogue around reparations and what does it look like for some of these institutions to understand that the ways that they've maintained and made wealth today and institutions that are responsible for our health have actually historically been involved in you know our enslavement and in our not being well whoa that is i did not
1: know that history about it being considered like mental illness for slaves to want to escape their conditions that is incredibly intense
0: this all sounds like really old history but it's actually not that old yes like uh for example works like words like self-determination uh agency uh, when the icarus project first started using them they were seen as very very dangerous by the community like what do you mean that crazy people are just going to be together and like under what professional Forced hospitalization was really easy to achieve 10, 12 years ago. The Acreous Project had these forums that had a lot of people. And in these forums, uh, people use usernames. And if you knew somebody's name, we were strongly encouraged to not use it in public. Because it was so risky talking about it. What are some of the
1: other tropes that or belief systems like that, like, um, that you see still really active now? Like one that I think about is like the words that are used to often describe like women and femme folks who are like in leadership of like, oh, like they're hysterical or um like like what are what are some of the the tropes and kind of stereotypes that you think come out of this astigmatized kind of mental health framework?
2: Um. Yeah, I think a trope that, you know, I, I can speak from my own experience currently is that um, there is this like mass movement kind of happening around uh, particularly people of color, black folks that are creating infrastructures around like, how do we take care of our mental health? But there's also this, you know, like myself, like I have a therapist, but. Even in engaging in those systems, uh, kind of as Augustina was talking it comes with its own things. like It's it's like a trade-off of sorts that you kind of have to engage when you're even entering the, these systems of like, okay, do I have the support that I need to just function and do this by myself? Or if I do get that help, will I be, you know, will it be gaslighted? Will my therapist understand and know what it, what it means to have, you know, a triple oppression of being Black, queer, woman, and Southern and all the other different identities and how those intersections are compounding to affect my mental health? And you know uh, i've often found and have heard even from a lot of my friends the the experience of going to a therapist or, or entering um these systems and it still becomes a caretaking experience where the patient is expected to cartel or to edit their experiences or their angers or frustrations towards white supremacy or certain structures um because the therapist is threatened or may not have a full understanding. And so you as yourself, you can't even show up as your full self to get the healing you need in those spaces. And so some people just, you know, throw up their hands. And I think it's a really hard um, balance to strike, um, which is why I think Igris is really into and, and, and is, rooted in like, how do we build mutual support, right? Like we don't claim to be um, therapists, we don't claim to have all the answers. But as people who are walking through the world and have had certain experiences, it's like, okay, how can we share this information? How can we bridge connection and network in a system that oftentimes is, is delineated and created on creating separation f- from each other and into making people think that they are isolated um, and experiencing things in silos when actually a lot of times is a reflection of larger societal or collective issues that people are facing um, but are forced to face them alone and so I think that's just an interchange that we see a lot is people feeling like you know how do I do this by myself which is why I think interrogating self-care in a very particular way around not re-emphasizing individualism but how is self-care a reflection of like actually setting boundaries about self-determination, about understanding more fully um, what it is that I need to be well and then seeing how that gets expressed collectively um, in community and, and having supports that can support you in on your journey to self-autonomy.
0: And in, in research we can we can infer the tropes even though if they don't say it. they For example, if a black man goes with the same symptoms, as a white man, the black man is gonna get a worse diagnosis. They are disproportionately labeled as schizophrenic and what it that tell us is fear, you know, uh, that black men are to be feared, black men are dangerous and they're particularly dangerous if they have these experiences. So let's just go to the fullest diagnosis, the one that is gonna put on heaviest medication so that they are not so scary. And again, this is fear-based and racist-based and it's not done for the well-being of the client. With Latinx, we see a lot about they're so underserved and maybe it's language and maybe understanding. And again, it's like ignorance. It's this ignorance and they're just unhealthy and they must come from countries they don't know anything about healthcare, so they don't seek health care and there is any analysis, there is no analysis around what it means to be a Latinx immigrant and going through through the system. It doesn't say anything about how there is more and more and more sharing of this information between systems and how you can put yourself at risk. If you're undocumented, I may know about it. But the system doesn't criticize itself. It just criticizes the client.
1: Yeah, that makes me think about, um, last year around this time, I was working with Movimiento Cosecha and trying to find some folks to support a group of folks who got uh, arrested and went on hunger strike in jail to when DACA was going to be repealed. And after the aftermath of that action, they were looking for mental health support and healing support for those young people because they were vast majority undocumented, uh, you know, risked arrest, and then did jail solidarity. So they were in jail for a week, uh, which was a super intense experience. And the some of the therapists that they found that they had gone to, like, they would basically share what was happening, and the therapist would be like... This is too stressful. You need to stop doing this. Like you need to stop organizing. You need to take a break. Like you need to stop putting yourself into these stressful situations and they're just like we have to do this to survive. <laughs> like we have to fight for our communities. We can't just individually try to take ourselves into as least stress as possible. Like this is a this is a collective issue that impacts our lives and so
0: Oh yeah. You are paranoid because you're doing this work and you're seeing all this racism where it's not there. So you're paranoid and they're concerned about you. Uh, you like suffering and that's why you're an activist. So how are you doing that to yourself?
2: Yeah. <laughs> There's a gambit of, of, of different ways that that comes across. And, and it just reinforces a lot of the ways that people feel like they're alone and, and don't really have a lot of networks or or people to talk to about um, issues they're facing. Um, And I know that, um, you know, I'm coming out of the movement for black lives as an organizer. Um, And I think oftentimes a lot of the things that I see as well is is um, our movements have have also created those as spaces um, that feel unsafe oftentimes to express what people are feeling, what they're going through, those stressors, um, because the sentiment is, you know, if we ever ever deal with that, those things that are hurting us, that grief, um, that pain, or those things that are harming us, then, you know, it'll be too much. We'll be overwhelmed. or We'll be unable to do the work. Um, and that may be true, and it may be actually necessary, you know, in order for us to get to a place of healing so we can come to our work healed and better um, instead of operating out of places that are hurt. I feel like, you know, we talk about decolonization uh, as a huge part of our work in in Icarus Project of, you know, how do we, how are we valuing ourselves and our relationships and our people over the productivity of, of trying to get things done in movement? Like healing is strategic. (laughs) I'm going to say that like healing is strategic and we have to make sure that it's incorporated. Otherwise we are doomed to keep reiterating a lot of the same structures that our people are trying to get away from and, and. Our movements become unsafe that's a security threat like it's a security threat that our folks are not getting healed like you know what i'm saying
0: yeah because let's think about what what the message is by the mental health system uh the the main message to me is like you come here not necessarily to be healed that would be nice but so that you're able to have your productive life every day so that you're able to cope so what is mental health is something that happens away from your life in this te- sterile, apolitical and ahistorical space in which you are helped to go back to work tomorrow and be able to cope with it. So that's the first thing that I think that we need to challenge. Uh, no, healing is not sideshow, it's not something we do on the side. Healing is something that we need to practice and infuse in our everyday lives and also shatter that idea of what healing looks like, that is sitting down in an office talking to somebody but recover the medicine, the ancestral medicine that we have in which often healing is actually what happens when you're doing something else like sharing food, playing a game Laughing together, intergenerational spaces in which we take care, in which we get the wisdom from the elders and we help take care of the little ones and accept their invitation to play and be around their joy. So I think that that is so important to not just think about what the content of the system, but how the whole system is by design, not made to serve the, the culture and the society that we want to see.
2: Yeah. And and I think one last thing I wanted to add on that is that I don't know why like Healing Justice and some of these get like this, like it's like a mushy, you know, type of thing. And I, I, I'm I, a fighter. I, I actually come to healing justice as a fighter and organizer of like, my people deserve better. And a lot of times these systems are swallowing us up. So I come to this work fighting for land justice. I come to this work fighting for economic justice and ecological justice. I come to this work believing in self-body and, and autonomy and reproductive justice. Like all of these things are deeply rooted in In the work that we're doing particularly around mental health and has those intersections and so there's there's work to be done and i yeah
0: and you know what we need to be careful with we need to be careful to not reproduce that idea that healing is something on the nose is something explicit that happens before or after events uh, as a thing like there is a lot of value in rituals but that is not the beginning and the end of healing justice work that is just a piece and that is not the piece it's a very important piece spiritually wise but it's not the piece that is going to transform society What is going to transform society is understanding what you were just saying rihanna that access to housing is healing justice access to food, education, all of that is healing justice because if we are saying that oppression causes mental health suffering then we need to look about the whole spectrum of what oppression looks like and all of that is healing justice.
2: Yeah, and we've, we've got to transform the relationship, I believe, too. Like, like when I talk about being an abolitionist, I also look at healing justice as, like, am I creating the structures so when these systems fall and when we finally get free that I know what I'm doing? Like, I know how to go to my people and take care of them, you know? And so I think there's also some education and some skilling up that... Um, we need to be thinking foresight, like if I believe that this is a future that's possible as an abolitionist, how do I know what to do when that system is coming down? How am I building it up all, about, all the while tearing it down? Well, I would
1: love to hear more about like what are some of the practical ways that you all are enacting that kind of building right now? Because I know that you do a lot of teaching and webinars yourselves, and I know also that you support groups who are really trying to integrate like this lens that that healing or mental health is not something that happens when you go off and are privatized into a sterile medical system but it's something we're trying to hold collectively. But I think a lot of people are also struggling with like okay, we believe that, but like how though? Like in this 2-hour meeting, what does that look like or in like the cu- the culture of our organizations, you know, the campaigns we take on, what does that look like?
2: Yeah, um, I guess I'm thinking uh, as well around like practices that um, I've that have been really helpful for me on the individual level. And um, I think one of the things that has been really a great uh, place for me has been understanding somatics um, and and being able to be in community with folks through bold shout out to bold fam um, black organizing for leadership and dignity and a lot of, I think, the frameworks and the ways that they talk about in body leadership is not around trying to control or trying to make things happen or force. Like Healing is not a linear process. Um, finding what you need, it changes at every moment. It's actually about rooting and finding greater awareness through your, what your body is communicating and coming into acceptance about what your body is expressing its needs are. And so I would encourage um, if folks know someone that's doing somatics or uh is familiar with that to lean into that and i think the my first entryway into understanding that was through meditation you know <laughs> i i want to say like that's like the thing everyone throws around but it it really has been a, a transformational uh, practice for me and just reclamation I, I i say reclamation of ancestral traditions like sometimes it's not even that it's like you know i grew up in houston texas come from, a, uh, you know, my family are both rural Texans. Um, And sometimes, you know, my healing or the practical things that I'm doing are things that my mama or my grandmama and our lineage did or sing together or, you know, go go ride horses or um, twerk, you know? (laughs) Like, I don't think it always has to be these, like, trying to make it feel better. Right, Like I need to feel good that I feel like that's also um, a misconception about healing is that it feels good. (laughs) Um, And and it's not actually always about that, even though I don't think it has to be always be about pain. You know, how are we singing more in our movement spaces? How do we eat more together? Um, How do we Do activities outside, find places where we can take breaks, you know what I'm saying, like reinsert values that we feel like are aligned with, like, who we want to be and 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 really show up in that way. Um, And it takes rigor. It takes practice to keep committing to doing that. But I think it's possible. Um,
0: I think one of the ways in which we work with organizations is with the framework that we're calling uh, emotional justice, emotional justice in the workplace and how do we uh, design workplaces that promote well-being and not this working myself to death activist culture that we're used to working on. Um, and, And we also make a distinction because we, how the mental health system works has been so ingrained with us like we confused healing with therapy. And so it's like making that real distinction in which people, oh, are you gonna come here and we're all gonna have to talk about our feelings and such? It's like, no, uh, it's still a workplace, you still have boundaries, you still have a- agency in which how much or how little you wanna share. What we mean is that you have procedures for uh, interpersonal relationships that are just uh, for us internally in the ACROSS project that means work plans that are realistic for the amount of hours that you're paid for. Having vacation days that are paid so that you can spend time with your biological or chosen family two, two times a year at least that you can dedicate to that. Mental health days, sick days that are paid and what is a fair wage like we're very small and we could pay people a lot less and be larger but doesn't seem just for us those are some things that are coming to me rihanna what are you thinking about
2: yeah we well we also do like You know skill building so um i know that we have a series that is for um activists that are in the field you know how to do emotional support and first aid um in a direct action or even in your um even in your things like there are things that we can do to support our people um in those crisis moments um and so those are some of the ways that um it brings it down to like just some tangible skills of, of like when things are happening, how do we respond in ways that are um, responsive? Because we're not in denial that, that things happen, that crises are happening, that our people are dealing with things all the time. And it's important that we are able to have sh- people and structures in place that can hold us when, when those things pop off. So the training piece is really huge for us in and trying to build that capacity and movement.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then there are other tools uh, for folks that are not able, because there's a lot of methodology, right? There's a lot of delivery of how this can look like and something that I think we need to to pay attention to is uh, how a lot of this requires able bodies that we don't all have, so naming other things like narrative medicine and what it's like to get in conversations with our feelings, which I know sounds a little weird, but it's actually it's really cool when you're able to uh be in conversations with what you're feeling, with what you're doing.
2: And I and I also want a um a narrative that um one of our our great partners, Leah Latchmi um, talks about I think it's important to also understand that, um, even the ways in which we understand how care happens, I think is really gendered. It's really racialized. Um, and so I also really like to encourage people to practice emotional consent or being consenting and care. You know, I also think there are ways that we can create safe places of like, actually, I'm not in a place where, where I can actually care for people. And how can we how can we communicate if we are un- incapable of caring for others and that it's not just an expectation uh, but it is actually a reciprocal relationship and a conversation around when support is being offered, how that person can support you and giving consent all around about how somebody wants to be cared for
0: mm-hmm. Yeah and I think to to uh, the point that you said, know, that we can not be happy all the time and I think that uh, some of, of the things that we are really clear about is that there are no good or bad emotions, right? Because also in something that is reproducing movement spaces is come with your best feelings and push, 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 and then you go at night and everything hits you and you're in crisis at night when you are alone. And that is just so common to receive phone calls at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., midnight because people have realized what they have lived throughout the day. So for us, it's how do we embrace every emotion? How do we do non-problematic outlets for emotions? So that we actually encourage people to have that quote unquote meltdown in the workplace or in the movement space or in the active space so that they can be supported through.
1: I have a question, particularly because of the way that we started this conversation with the story from Sasha's article about people who were committing suicide um, in the movement. Um, Just in the past couple of years in, in my broader organizing community, we've lost two people that way. And... What what would you say about you know the fact that that's still happening? Like, what does that tell us about ourselves? And then, are there emotional first aid kind of skills or orientations we could have to be checking up on each other differently?
0: Uh, yes, we are actually doing a web three webinars. This is six hour training in emotional first aid, uh, but also do want to point out that emotional first aid is. Uh, when the water is boiling, how do we keep it from boiling over? And when we're talking about suicide, we need to start working much, much uh, before that. Um, I personally, because I didn't grow up here and I come from a culture where people are very used to talking about their feelings, um, I, I, I feel a little, I don't, I don't know, like taken aback that is the forbidden word. Suicide, uh, and we have this idea that it's triggering and that it's gonna cause a lot of harm. And sometimes I get this idea, this this thing in my head. It was like, how many more people are we gonna keep losing before we try something different? So I'm always looking, like, hoping, hoping that somebody's gonna call us and say, let's explicitly talk about suicide, because uh. that doesn't happen. Um, and, and like I said people before like people work 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 and those suicidality usually comes at night when they're alone uh, so it's not shared in the workspace and some people may know they may suspect but from um, uh, my state of consciousness I can be feeling a way at night and feeling that everything is going to end and this is horrible and then I I sleep and I wake up I'm like, I don't feel that way anymore. So that we have these opportunities, these windows in which we are engaging with people on an emotional level and not an intellectual level in which they are talking about what they felt yesterday and how do we make those emotional moments happen? Well, we are surrounded by people and we can hold those conversations and be open about it. And, and to me, that, that's a, a, a lot, um, the big part of it, right? Because we keep saying to people or I see that people, something that we say a lot is that if you don't feel what call me. Well, in my experience, when people are really in a very intense suicidal Uh, Picking up the phone and calling somebody with a very common and rational and saying, hey, I want to talk this out, it's just not going to happen. So it's kind of like, how do we catch these moments as they're happening? So the conversation is very raw and open and emotional. And we are just not theorizing about those times in which we felt suicidal.
2: Yeah, um... And I, I kind of want to come to this question in a in a much more personal way. I think, um, you know, as someone who who is ideated and has and often does it still sometimes. I think that. Um, that like Augustina was saying, I think a lot of times one of the ways that we've been able to to really bring that up is is through narrative um, and really leaning into narrative medicine of like, when we tell our stories, like when we're able to not... Feel a shame, and um, we're we're in such a shame and guilt ridden um, society. And I think there's so much wrapped up, even in in our spiritual understanding of what that means, um, and 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 our fear of, of death, and and what that means around for people around us. The one of the things that I'm thinking of is is one of the tools that we're going to share in the practice that I help. I hope is just a starting ground to that is is having some type of of self-care plan. I think when we become more self-aware of ourselves and and not in denial that we're, we're having these thoughts or that we're having these certain behaviors, we can be a lot more honest about what we need and being like, you know, hey, you know, when I start to disassociate or when I don't call you in a couple of days, like, Come see me, come find me, you know, being able to have those conversations when we're feeling a little bit well or more well, that is how we're gonna do it. Like Augustina, in the moment, it's actually a little bit too late. And so how do we be open and and be willing to create those stories and we have to make the space for that? It it takes risk, it takes vulnerability. Um, and I've I've come to approach suicide with respect, with reverence, with honor. Um, A lot of the ways that we are facing oppression in this world, um, like I said, it's very hard to believe that we're all walking through the world not malfunctioning. Um, And so I've come to actually really honor um, that process as people are trying to work and figure out what does self-determination look like? And sometimes that is what self-determination looks like. And how do I come from that place of of non-judgment? It's took a lot for me to get to that place and and even judging my own thought process when I'm going through it. And that's how I like to think about it. Um, and, And the more that we can have conversations like that, where we can talk about that, I think is where more space, more air, more breath, is able to be breathed into a larger conversation.
0: Yeah, it's just so, if you think about it, it's just, it's so interesting, the similarities uh, between the pro-life movement and how we approach suicide. It's like, no, it's a life, we value it, it needs to live, it needs to live. And it's like, for what? Then what? Uh, Like the the value that is put isn't just like, living is this magnificent thing that we should all embrace without questioning. I have moments when I was younger, it's like, am I living a life that is worth living? And a lot of times the answer was no. So this emphasis on just keeping people alive, just for the sake of keeping people alive. And the other thing that I was thinking was, I hear a lot of the hurt after the suicide, so why did the person talk to me? Why didn't they give me a call? They knew I was available. So like Rihanna was saying, instead of putting the honors, the burden of somebody that is in a really emotional, distraught place, to have to make a phone call, how do we talk about, what do I look like when I am deeply hurting, so that you can come to my help? asking for help is very difficult in the best of times and in the worst of times I I just think it's pretty impossible and it's not a realistic expectation I think that we really need to invest in relationships and learn more and make more time for those conversations. Mm,
2: That's that's spot on and Oh, my gosh. I'm sitting there in this conversation I'm like, ooh, this is this is like tense. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's a conversation we're not used to having. And so I think that um, the more we talk about it, the more that we can explicitly say this is the life that I want to live. This is how I want to do it. And, and 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 a lot of the pressures that come with that, um yeah, I, I think that we'll get so so much further. But it, it is uncomfortable and it is and it's something that that feels very vulnerable. Um and so you know it's not a, it's not an easy conversation to broker at all.
1: Well, as we start to transition, I do have a question about if people have heard you all talk about um particularly around suicidal ideation, if people have heard you talking about transforming our cultures around mental health and the way we do organizing and are like, oh, my gosh, they're so right. We need to change this. We need to do this differently. But they don't know where to start. Are there a couple directions in which you would point us in terms of resources or continuing to study with you um, so that we can start to uh, transform the way we're showing up?
2: I think one of the things that has been most important just like uh, off the base is like finding your people. Like and 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 I I say that very broadly, whatever that means to you because there's so much to do. I think we get caught in like the overwhelm, but we actually have to start at the personal experience. Like that's that's the building block of organizing, right? Like we come to this work because it affects us on a personal level and and our people and what we care about. And it takes a vulnerability, I'm not going to lie, to like reach out and, and try to find other people that are like you. Um, but I definitely you know, believe, you know, if we are organizers, you know, it starts at that building block of, uh, of relationship.
0: Yeah. Another thing that I think about is how we have this to do culture in which you have to be doing something. Um, so we, we do workshops. Uh, we do a lot of workshops, actually. And the most meaty part is actually when we're having lunch or the, when you are hanging out and distressing after the conversation. Um, and we, we have a partnership with, with one organization particularly in which actually we are allowed to go and just be and let know people that were there and let conversations arise by themselves. If you go and say, these are ABC things that that you can do. I mean, of course, having that information is helpful, but what it would look like to have healing justice folks in your space without an agenda? When you are actually just hanging out and as you build relationships, the conversations get deeper and deeper. And I think that is so much more meaningful and so much full of knowledge than when it's just a structured workshop. But we are not used to that. Yeah, and I think that is something that is deeply in this country, like, it's not something that I had experienced before, like, let, let's just have a mate and let's just make, it, make the rounds for hours and let's see what, what, what comes out is how I would do the work at home. Uh, And here like also under pressure to perform and to be in front there like as an expert when you just want to be a peer, but also understand that there are deliverables to funders and there's this and that and there are so many barriers to us just being together without being mediated by productivity and expertise and this and that.
2: Yeah. And and even for my organizer buffs, like I'm a I'm a research person. I love doing research um, and, and um, a lot of the ways that I've been able to understand people, whether whether you're more of a quantitative person and you want the numbers and the stats like <laughs> um, for, or you want to like hold a forum in your community, like to build local power. And you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, there are ways that you can incorporate your experience and transform that into some type of organizing strategy around like finding the ways in which your people are being harmed, you know, (laughs) unfortunately, harm is abound. (laughs) So that's not always hard to find. But, you know, maybe that looks like learning more about the infrastructure of mental health in your city, learning like how many hospitals are in your area, you know, do people have access to health care and, and clean water? And so these are intersections in some of the work that folks are doing. But I think that, even in the field that you're in, you know, just bring in that framework. Just just do some research around how does this framework really connect to the work that I'm already doing and start incorporating that so you have a fuller analysis, which means fuller solutions, you know, even for the work that you're currently moving.
1: That's right. Um, well, I know that before you go that you are going to be offering a practice that is a concrete tool that people can try at home or in their groups Um, And I know, Rihanna, you'll be offering it to us in English and Agustina will be offering it in Spanish. And the new way that we offer our practice episodes is that this week you're hearing um, our conversation drop and the practices will come out next week. So without getting into all the details, could you give us a quick preview for people who are going to be staying tuned next week?
2: Um, so, uh, we're going to be doing a practice around, um, Mad Maps, um, which is a tool that Icarus Projects uses to help people name some of their purpose, like explore in that we're asking people to get to the heart of like, what's important to you. And then there's also a piece of the Mad Maps that is really looking into What can I practically do? Like, who is my network? Who are the people that I can depend on? If that doesn't exist, like, where would I find that? And really kind of help you brainstorm some of those preventative um, and in the moment measures that we talked about earlier um, before the crisis is at a boiling point to be able to. Just do some mapping around what it looks like for you to get the care that you need. And the idea behind this tool is not only for you to just do the practice by yourself, but to share it, right? To, to lean into that vulnerability of building connection with others so that if something occurs or if a crisis arises, um, that there are other people that understand what is needed.
1: Awesome. Well, we thank you both so much for spending time with us today. Um, and wish you great luck in your work. Folks who want to stay in touch with the Icarus Project can find all of that information in the show notes. Thanks for being here. Thank you all so much. Thank you for having us. You just heard a conversation between Rihanna Anthony, Agustina Vidal, and me, Kate Werning. If you found this resource useful, please join us with your support on patreon.com slash healingjustice. We have three new reward levels coming out soon, so this is a really fun time to join us. There'll be a book club and other things forthcoming, so come on over to patreon.com slash healingjustice. You can download the corresponding practice that is offered by Augustina and Rihanna, to learn about making your own mad map which is a tool that they use often in icarus it can be done alone or done in a group and you will see that episode get published next week both with an english and a spanish offering Rihanna mentioned a book, and some other things were mentioned in this episode, uh, and also Rihanna gave us a list of some good resources after we talked. All of that is listed in the show notes. And the show notes, all that means is a description of the episode in whatever platform you're listening. If you're on iTunes or especially if you're on Spotify, the show notes can actually be kind of hard to see. They don't always display very well. The formatting is weird or they get cut off early. So I recommend that you come on over with us to Radio Public, which is another podcast listening platform. It's an app you can download to your phone or you could look at it in a browser. On Radio Public, the show notes show up really nicely, clear and organized. And they keep all of that nice formatting that I work hard to give you all. (laughs) So check us out on Radio Public if you're looking for the resources. Yeah, There's also links in the show notes to join our email list, which you can do at healingjustice.org. And to find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So stay in touch with us there and be in conversation with us about what you thought about this episode. This episode was edited by Rachel Ishikawa and mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. We are so happy to be back with you here on season two and we'll hear you next week.